Welcome to the Ignite Physio Podcast. This podcast inspires physiotherapists and other health professionals to continue learning and growing in their practice and throughout their career. We explore uh, professional issues with a fresh lens, and we also dive into topics that are going to help expand our capacity for growth. This is episode number 30, and I'm Andrew. And I'm Maxie. Episode 30. So here we are. We just finished part one of uh, our great conversation with Alex and Janet, and uh, today's episode is really going to be a continuation. Uh, there was a lot that we packed into that last conversation. Oh, it, w- it was a real rodeo. Yeah. It was awesome. <laughs> so. And I know that after we talked about the recording, we were like, you know what? We cannot do this all in one podcast because no. there's too much meat in in this this episode. So we decided to split it up and, and turn it into two. So um, yeah, let's just jump right back in. Already. There's this idea of you have to meet the patient where they're at. You know, yeah. and, totally. and that requires a lot of presence. Uh, yeah. It requires a lot of receptivity. Um, you have to be genuine as a therapist yourself, um, you know, and, and to be able to, to meet them where they're at, whether if they're blue collar, if they're, if they're an athlete, if they're not an athlete, if they're a musician, wherever they are, what is exactly the hook um, that you're able to kind of access so that you can, you can connect in with, with that, where you can plug into them essentially and, uh, and, or vice versa, they can plug into you. Um, and so I think, yeah, you're hitting on a lot of massive relational <laughs> sorts of, of ideas here. So yeah. it's, you know. And probably that's the first step with with a persistent or chronic pain patient is building that therapeutic alliance. And, you know, for some people that is, you know, we talked about barriers to truly understand somebody's pain and to build that relationship with them does demand emotion of the therapist. Janet and I were talking about the difference between, you know, somebody telling me I have seven out of 10 pain or saying I've got this gnawing, knifing, red hot, feels like somebody's eating my guts out pain. Well, when you hear that, you get a lot different emotional reaction than seven out of 10. So truly understanding where your patient coming from can be very demanding at times, for sure. And very exhausting by the end of the week. If you're truly going to sit there and let your patient tell their narrative and listen to every word and explore every word to get that context is is tiring. Yeah, and that, and that sort of dives into a whole other topic of you know self care and you know uh, you know that whole that that's a whole other topic which is a really interesting topic. Um, but uh, but I, I think yeah, it's true. Like you know what you're saying. You know you need time. You need time with the patient. You also need time as a therapist afterwards to even just be able to process some of that. Um, and, and yeah, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that make it tough to actually really, uh, do well working with patients in this area. Yeah, well, exactly. So that's what I was going to say. So, okay, we talked about, <laughs> we brought everybody down <laughs> and there are still people listening to the podcast and still want to like take this sort of approach. Um, <laughs> That, you know, but, but you said, but it's rewarding. So I guess what are some of the access routes into this? Like, how do you begin to sort of inchworm your way in to make it digestible so that you can kind of move along this path? Well, I think it starts with outcomes. And I think it starts with people shifting their outcomes from the typical tissue outcome measurements and moving into quality of life and participation. And once you really understand 
what you're trying to succeed at, then it starts to change your think your thinking and your critical thinking as well into another direction. So if I'm taking somebody who is having trouble trouble getting out of bed in the morning, so their downtime, let's say, is 20 hours, and you know, getting dressed and eating was a successful day. Well, their quality of life's not that great. So if I start with a quality of life measurement from there and start working um, in a participation model of treatment, or as I've been accused of being, a wannabe OT. Um, <laughs> oh, I've been there too, Janet. I'm accused all the time. <laughs> it's all right. I consider that a compliment. Yes. <laughs> and um, I'm looking from a top-down approach to treatment. I think that's where the rewards start to come faster. And then you start thinking about what what else do I need in my skill set to make these changes versus what technique do I need? It's what's missing in my skill set to make this behavior change to engage patients to. um, And some of those may be specific skill sets like exploring more appropriate muscle strengthening for somebody with myofascial pain. Certainly there's some literature out there on that. But it also may be considering um, maybe more of the psychological research about life roles, maybe Erickson's life stages. Where is your patient at in the spectrum? It's important for them to be a parent, a father, a spouse at this moment. And, and where are they at in their life and driving the participation roles down from, from the top? So what you're saying is change the goalposts in terms of what we're, what we're aiming for. Yeah, you're not trying to change muscle strength. You're trying to get that person who can't get out of bed to maybe walk to the super mailbox to get her mail as a start. Because then she'll meet her neighbor there and she'll get to have a conversation with her neighbor. And now we have social interaction. Hey, now we've got the ball rolling. Right. So it's not, and it's not even, oh, not so much concerned about the quality of how she's walking to the mailbox either right heel toe no. or whatever you know what no. I mean like how how we might as physical therapists start to focus on technique yep. it's it's more the whole get yourself yep. to the mailbox I don't care how you get yourself there but get yourself there right yeah well you got to watch what you say because I have military guys who'll say they'll crawl <laughs> <laughs> we might not want that right might not <laughs> <laughs> but yeah and we don't care about the walking speed at the beginning and we just, you know, want to get them doing meaningful activity, meaningful to them, not to me. What is meaningful to them? Maybe it's baking cookies with their kids. Maybe it's visiting their grandparent. What is meaningful to them? And even though they may be a workman's comp patient, work may not be your first goal because it's, they may have a job that they have to pay the bills and they need it and they don't want to quit it. And it's not that they're, they don't like it per se. They still want that job, but it's not a meaningful activity to them. And you need to start from a place of meaning. I, I agree with that. Everything Janet just said, I 100% agree. Um, sometimes your patients will come in with their goal or thing they want to achieve that's just way too high. And our job is to break that down. So their goal might be to run around after their grandchildren. Well, w- it might take a few little 
steps in the way to, before we can get there, but breaking it down so that they can see positive change, so that they can see that they're achieving those goalposts. So like you said, Andrew, changing the goalposts, sometimes mm -hmm. it might be our job to say, you know, we've elicited what matters to them, what's really important to them, but you know as a physio that that goal might be a little way away. It's changing those goalposts so we have a few in the way so they can see they're going in the right direction. And knowing all the things that come in, like social isolation and self-identity, all the things how can we look at all the things that make up this person and make each of those pieces better so they function better? And when you change the goalposts into the, into the small bits, explaining to them how each individual goalpost gets them to the big one. And because we often, I don't think, we sit down, we do our treatment plans and say, oh, I need this, this, and this to achieve this. But we don't tell the patient why A, B, and C are important to get to D. And I think for... For me, when we do our pain, like if you're doing an, an intervention on pain education, if I know I've done a good one, then my treatment plan makes sense to the patient. They can go, oh, that's why we're doing this. That's why we're doing this. They go, oh, there's a light bulb that goes on and they go, oh, now I understand. Because so it should make sense to them. Because I think one of my things about whether you give an exercise, you know, what, that old question, what's the best exercise? It's the one the patient actually does. And I think, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, you see therapists will give them 30 exercises and you just know they're never going to do them. So it's what is meaningful to them. And it might not be an exercise. It might be no. a brain exercise. So it could be a brain exercise. It could, which I call some of the sort of mind body stuff, or it could be a physical exercise, or it could be walking to the mailbox. But it's changing how we look at it. We need to not have such a narrow view and look at it in a much more broad life-based view. Or your brain, you know, what is it that your brain's looking at? Yeah, uh, I've even looked at patients and I said, I can give you this, but, you know, based on everything you've told me about yourself, you really haven't embraced formal exercises in the past. So I can give it to you, but the odds are you'll do it, but maybe not as much as you need to, but it might fall off into nothing. So how about you tell me what you can commit to? And we'll go with that. Well, it sounds to me like what what I'm hearing as a meta sort of a concept is partnership, right? I mean, there's there's uh, you know, you're not. I think as and we can we can go we can get into this rut pretty quickly, you know, in terms of um, you know, we get we're going to prescribe this this and this to achieve this this and this, and the patient you know hasn't is sitting there you know, not participating at all in that conversation. And then as physical therapists, we get upset when the patient's gotten in the way of our goals for them, right? So, yes, so it's, you know, so we get really annoyed with the patient for, you know, not adhering to what we wanted them to achieve. Um, but the problem is that we've defined what we think is valuable to them without asking the patient what they think is valuable, right? What do they actually want to get out of these sessions what what's yeah what are their goals and, and really creating that partnership right and so and there can be i think um uh, some challenge and you you two tell me if if this is, rings true to you sometimes is that you'll have patients who will come in who will be more passive who will you know um maybe not even know what is meaningful to them um they don't even know why they're there <laughs> yeah they, or they may be suspicious of you when you're asking them that right so like I guess kind of the, those sorts of bumps, like how do you deal with, with the bumps that you rub up against with patients sometimes that, 
you know, maybe are more, more passive or just aren't used to, are used to an expert. They want you to tell them what they should be doing. Or they're used to give me the exercises, give me the ultrasound. This has worked in the past, you know. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's, yeah, there's so many different bumps <laughs> we could look at. I spend quite a bit of time about at the beginning asking them things like, why do you think you have your pain? Because that tells me a lot. Why do you think you have the pain? You know, what have others told you about your pain? You know, why do you think your pain gets better or worse depending on what they've told me? I'm always interested in what do they think they need to get better because that tells me a lot of their expectation as well. I like to know quite a bit about how the pain makes them feel. So I spend a lot of time about asking them. I usually say, can you teach me about your pain? Can you teach me about your pain so that they feel empowered to let me know how how this impacts their whole life? And and I also ask them, this is, I think, similar to what Janet had said, is what would you be doing now if you didn't have your pain? What's it getting in the way of you doing and what things are important to you so that we can set those goals together? And if we have a patient that has that sort of, you know, they've tried 50,000 different tissue treatments and it's not helping and Jen and I were talking about there's an analogy I use I use it with therapists as well is sort of if you it's sort of how many physios does it take to change a light bulb we were laughing is because <laughs> if you take the light bulb as the tissue you know sometimes it might really be a sprained ankle and if we treat the tissue the analogy is the light bulb and we change the light bulb while it lights up that's great but are we going to keep putting 50,000 different light bulbs in there, trying 50,000 different target, you know, tissue treatments thinking it's going to change? At some point, should we not follow that light bulb back to the switch and then back to the fuse box? So my analogy for that is you're going to the spine and the, the brain. The brain is your fuse box. If changing that light bulb isn't fixing the problem, keeping on putting in a thousand different light bulbs isn't going to change anything, but maybe going to our fuse box might. So sometimes I'll sit with the patient and we'll, in part of the education, we'll go through that and they'll go, oh, you know, they just don't know. So sometimes the bumps are because they they just don't know about pain because they've been told pain is always tissue and pain means something's bad is happening. So that can be a lot of the bumps for some of the people that I see. I have to agree with everything Alex said. And there's a few other things that I'll use to try and... Um, make it meaningful for the patient to get them part of the team for goal setting. And because a lot of my patients get sent to see me not knowing why they got sent to see another physio again, because we're a tertiary care center. We're known as a specialization center and they're referred to see a physiatrist. And so they're going to see another doctor. So they're expecting some treatment, some surgery, some injection, something wazoo that going to do it for them. And then they're told they're going to physio. So <laughs> they're coming through the door going, great, we're going to do what doesn't work. And why are you wasting my time? So I do have to go through a lot of the sort of things that Alex goes through. But my spiel that I often start off with them is people come to see me not because of they have pain, although they think that's why. I said, but really when it gets down to it and we start thinking about it, people come to see me because they can't do things that are important to them. And if we can get them doing those things that are important to them, 
usually the pain is not such a big deal anymore. Now there are my complex regional pain patients, there is a subgroup that that doesn't apply because their pain is just exquisitely off the charts. Um, and you do need to think top down and bottom up with those patients. Um, but for the vast majority of my persistent pain patients, it really is those life roles that they can't do. And when you, you spin it in that regard and say, you're coming to see me not because of the pain. You're coming to see me because you can't do these things. And you need to tell me what those things are. And then goal setting around those. And then for, I find my students and newer members to our team, what works really well to start that conversation is when when they don't have that sort of authentic personal script that works for them, that seems genuine, is actually to start to use the patient-specific functional scale because at least it starts opening that conversation with the patient that I really want to know what your goals are. I really want to know what you can't do. And usually a conversation evolves from that with the patient. And I think that helps the therapist sound more genuine and the students sound more genuine and a little less out of their league. I agree. Sometimes it's hard for people to even know what's important to them. You know, if you have a mom that all she does is look after other people, she doesn't really even know anymore who she is or what Mm. matters to her, or she's become her pain. And so sometimes it takes a long time to figure out who are you and what matters to make you feel good. And that's not always easy to identify for the patient. Those are the tough patients that now have become their diagnosis. And that, so how do you, do you I mean, uh, obviously that's, that's a multi-session process to really, uh, you know, explore that with a patient. How, how, do you, how do you go about that? I think you need Kleenex in the room. <laughs> you think? I think you need lots of Kleenex in the room because they cry. I cry. I cry some more. Um, and not be afraid of the tears because I used to, when I was young, yeah. I was afraid of the tears. I was something I would kind of run from and silence. Sometimes you just sit there quietly and, you know, you might be listening to something or you might be listening to nothing, but just the presence of being there and accepting they're allowed that emotion and some grief can be very freeing in some ways, but it, 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 there is emotion that comes out in those settings. And usually I find for me, once the emotion's out, you've built an even stronger connection and you can build going forward and they feel safe with you. Safety affects their, their pain a lot. And so I find that, you know, sometimes that barrier is, is much less after they've uh, sort of released some of that emotion. There's nothing worse than walking out of the room and saying, I'll give you a few minutes to collect yourself. Because you just dismiss them, um, and I, I think at the start of my career, I know I did that. How horrific! Um, <laughs> because it was uncomfortable for me dealing with somebody else's emotions that were that raw coming at me, especially as you know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, wet behind the ears, twenty-five-year-old. It's like ah, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> And sometimes if you think of it sort of neurobiologically, sometimes that helps me. If I, I can't remember who has that analogy of a bucket. People can take so much in their bucket. But if you think that whatever that brain structure is, is firing from so much emotional pain and we add physical on top of that, for whatever reason that 
that may be coming in. It may not be nociceptive, maybe neuropathic. Sometimes if we can just let that emotional come down, it, everything is better. If we can think of it more neurobiologically, sometimes people or phys physios can handle that better than okay. thinking, you know, it's so out of scope. It's not out of scope to sit and just hold somebody's hand while they cry. Um, can I tell that little story, Janet, that I told you, we spoke about on the, when we were talking earlier? There was um, a gentleman that sure. came and gave his patient experience, and I think this speaks to what Janet was meaning earlier also, is um, he, he was asked to speak at a conference, very articulate, very intelligent man, and he was very high level within the university. He'd had like six, uh, I can't remember how many surgeries, but many, many surgeries on his esophagus. So he was asked to speak about his uh, patient experience. And somebody asked him what was the most important thing somebody did, thinking he would say that he had an epidural or that he had laparoscopic surgery, all the technologies that we have. And this man who'd experienced horrendous pain and been in the hospital for a long time, what he said brought the room to a silence. He said, one day I was scared, a nurse sat down and held my hand, period. Out of six mm -hmm. months in the hospital, that was the single most important thing that happened to him, he said. And I responded to Alex's story telling her that when I had my appendix out, the person that made me feel the most secure in the ER waiting for surgery was a cleaner who gave me a warm blanket when I was cold. So it's the little things that make the biggest impact in our treatments and people don't realize it. But if we get back to the practicalities of what do we do with the patient who's become their diagnosis after they've had their, usually their Terry um, one session or two sessions, there's a lot of emotions that come out. You know, hopefully it is just one session, but you have to be patient till they're ready to, to move to the next. Hey, Andrew here. Just a quick break from the podcast as I wanted to let you know about an innovative web-based tool that I'm building that's going to help optimize your treatment approach and achieve better results with less stress. The reason I'm building this app is to help myself and other therapists more deeply understand our patients so that we can avoid the potential pitfalls that can jeopardize treatment outcomes. So much of what impacts treatment is hidden below the surface, and this tool will help adjust how you approach each patient based on who they are. Think of it as Outcome Measures 2.0. Make sure to check out the show notes for a link to sign up to get my latest updates. All right, back to the show step and I sort of have a conversation with them is you know in a perfect world in a perfect situation if I could wave my wand what would put a smile on your face if you could do that today to get them thinking beyond their diagnosis get them thinking about the things that make them happy because then there's a starting point for me to start working from agreed what brings them joy yeah. How do we get the joy back in their life? What things might that be for them? And also sometimes I'm very fortunate. I work with a psychologist. So if it's something that I think is way beyond me, I will say I think, you know, it would be beneficial to bring this person onto the team so that we can work together. Yeah, very definitely. So, and really, and you know, some people have had horrific lives. It's, it's the stories that come out of some of these people's lives is just like wow, okay, I'm really grateful for what I have. Um, and I've even almost had to walk people back pre these horrific traumas to get an idea of goals that are meaningful for them, that are meaningful to their self-identity and who they are rather than their diagnosis. I think of some of our refugees. 
they've been in such a vortex of chaos for multiple years that there is nothing meaningful in those years that you sort of have to walk them back to a stable time to get some idea who they are. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's finding little tiny achievements, even when they can't see it. So you can, you know, sometimes it's difficult for them, but you've, you can see it and making sure that they see that too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, I think Andrew and I are just sitting here like, you know, going, yeah, we're nodding and we're going, yeah. (laughs) I think, yeah, there there are so many points of, of, of kind of interjection, you know, of, of being, you know, I think the idea of, 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 of looking towards, you know, not just meaning, but joy. Right. And that, and that, uh, um, gratefulness, right? What are you grateful for? Even as physical therapists, we're grateful for things. But, but I know with some of the people that I've worked with in the past, like you know, we do a, a we call it an inner smile sort of meditation, right? And it's it's if you could think of one thing that when you think of it in that moment, it makes you smile, right? That that shifts somebody's whole body. It shifts their physiology. So yeah. when I hear you guys speak about about, um, you know, having, bring, talking about those things, helping people bring those things up again, you know, that's important. We think that people just do that. They don't, right? They don't just do that. And I think that if we can facilitate that, if we can help people get to that point, I think that can be a, those can be huge things. Sitting with them when they're crying and also sitting with them when they're experiencing some joy or helping them relive that joy. I think those are two key things that we probably would never think would make a, a transformational sort of shift in somebody's life. Giving them high fives when they've achieved something. Don't just say, don't just tick your box for your chart. It's like, wow, that's spectacular. High five. And really giving them the credit they deserve because for you, that might be nothing to achieve that. For them, it just took them two months to get there. It's a big deal. And I think that means we're on the same team. I think that's hugely important. Janet has this word that I've fallen in love with. It's tribe, that we're their tribe, you know, we're their team. And I say to my patient, you are my athlete and I am your coach. And it doesn't really matter if we're doing exercise or hypnosis or whatever we might be doing. I'm your coach and you're my athlete, but we are a team together. And I think when we take true joy in their success, they can feel that genuineness of it. And that, that buffers the fact that it can be very draining. And sometimes for us, we have to find gratitude in little things that show us that we're gaining in the weight. And that way can give you, you can keep on going because sometimes these patients, they're not always the easiest in the world, but they can be the most rewarding. When you move a patient to tears because I actually got to pick my grandchild up, that was, you know, it's been a year in the making and I got to do it. The joy is phenomenal. Or I got dressed by myself. It's huge. There's so much in not being able to independently get dressed. Um, So much that hits them where they live that we don't think often that these little things are some of our bigger achievements in their treatment. And, you know, the therapist is waiting for them to walk 500 meters. Well, okay, that's really great. And it gets them out of the house and gives them greater community independence. But when they can't dress themselves, that's the bigger whammo to get achieved. Yeah. And as I'm listening to, to, you know, what you guys are saying, I think that it, it also just highlights again, how much we have to, you know, our own beliefs as therapists in terms of where are we bringing value and like, what does this, you know, what, what are we trying to achieve in a session or, you know, with a treatment plan and, and moving that outside of, 
you know, sort of what we've typically, I think, or where we feel comfortable with, right? Because I mean, these are things that they, they take time, they, you know, and we need to be present with our patients in that. And, um, and it's going to make us feel a little bit of uncomfortable, but I think it's taking a step back and saying, what, why does that make me feel uncomfortable as a therapist to actually be present with them in this and experience their joy or sit with them, you know, when they are, um, you know, tearing up, you know, and, and allowing ourselves to actually take that step back. I think, I mean, I think that could really help in terms of getting ourselves more comfortable with that. But I, but I'm curious what you guys think. On changing how we look at it, you mean? Yeah. Or just even getting more comfortable with this change of how we actually view what we're doing with patients. Yeah. I think Dave Walton at like the leadership forum in Ottawa made a really good point that physios are very focused on what mobility means. And to us, we've been taught mobility means strength and range of motion and flexibility. And and we've really sometimes missed the point that mobility is that bigger issue. And I think as a profession, to be more comfortable with doing what we need to do with patients who suffer from persistent pain, we really have to expand that de- definition of mobility. And mobility is the basic life stuff, but it's also the stuff that gives joy. It's play. It's it's that bigger context of what defines me as a human being. It's not about MSK mobility. It's about the grand scope. I completely agree with everything that Janet just said. also think it takes a while to get comfortable with the listening and the amount of time it takes for listening. I was on a Mark Jensen course and it wasn't probably until then when he was talking about the motivational interviewing, I realized, you know, sometimes I felt guilty because I spent so much time listening. I didn't get some of the more traditional stuff done. And it wasn't until I had a, yeah, yeah, it wasn't until I had an incident when listening led me down to realize something is seriously wrong with this guy. And he's been here a month and he ended up having a big spinal abscess. If I hadn't taken the time to listen to be there for half an hour just listening to him to realize something is not right here. That one experience gave me the confidence that listening is a huge part of what I do and I'm gathering Mm -hmm. so much information. Most of the time it's not going to bring out a red flag, but sometimes it does. And listening itself is treatment. Listening is treatment. And it took me a long time to see that as part of physio because I'd always didn't realize the value in the listening, but now I'm a convert. The listening makes a huge difference because I can plan my treatment better if I listen. I'm also going to expand is listening on what's not said. So she alluded to red flags, but then there's the orange flags. And fortunately, I don't have to deal with a lot of red flags because they go by way of medicine to get to me. I wouldn't say it never happens, but the incidence for me is much lower. But what I do have to deal with um, because some of my population, especially the CRPS population, is so severely impaired and their life roles have been so severely impacted is I, I actually have quite a bit of suicidal patients. Um, and it's the what is not said to know when you really need to stop everything and, and start listening, start listening to what they say, start listening to the body language in case you have to engage them in that conversation because it may not be a red flag, but... Um, morbidity and mortality are just as essential in those moments to not miss that moment. I would completely agree. And I think it takes a while before therapists are comfortable to ask that question regarding, you know, thoughts of hurting themselves or suicide. And we had a discussion at work and it was surprising how many people just felt they didn't know what to do because if the answer was yes, they weren't comfortable with what they would do about it. 
So I think that's really important understanding that although within Alberta we don't actually have a duty to report, there are the college on the website clearly states the things that when you can, you know, decide that this person is a risk, if they're a risk to themselves or others, if it's imminent danger, you know, there's times where you can break that patient confidentiality and call the police or, or call the doctor or whatever. But you need to feel comfortable with that question because when you have patients with severe pain, that sometimes it's a real question. It's a real question. And sometimes they've nobody's ever asked them before. And when you yeah. ask them that question, they realize you understand how bad their pain is. And it, 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 it's, it is a big question. And your therapeutic relationship from that point on is gold. It is because they've, some of these people have had these thoughts for six months and they've seen countless specialists and nobody has gone there. I would 100% agree. Yeah. And I think it's surprising how people don't know, I mean, in the community, depending on where you work, I think that can make it very different because if you work in rural Alberta, it's very different than if you can just walk them to emerge. Your whole plan has to be different but mm -hmm. knowing what what we have to do or what we don't have to do having that comfort when you have a patient that's could be in that setting I think it's it's an important thing to have at the back of your mind and sometimes they don't sometimes they don't have the intent to do it that day but you're really going to spin your wheels if they're in that dark place if their depression is that deep-seated and you need to identify that they're having these thoughts so you can help get them another team member to help with your, your treatment plan. Because when depression's that severe, you usually need a psychologist to help them move forward. Um, because it, it now becomes a multi-team approach to, to get these patients to back to their lives, back to meaningful quality, quality of life. And I think that, that you just sort of possibly, there's a lot of things that, that we can feel uncomfortable about um, as physios with, with that, with that air, like with helping or, or being with patients who are significantly depressed and may have suicidal thoughts, you know, um, and one of them is, I mean, we're problem solvers, right? We want to solve problems as physios. And if we can't solve that problem, that's a problem. So, so what do we, what do we do? Like, what do we do from there? Like, and so it's, it's that avoidance. We're, we're fear avoidant in our behavior because, because we're going, I don't want to have anything to do with that because I don't know what to do. I, I want to help you, but I don't have the resources. It's out of my scope. Even asking the question is out of that's my scope. Um, but it's there's not. I know, but I, I hear you, but there's confusion around that, right? And it's much easier, like every other professional, you know, that has seen them to just go, well, it's not really what I deal with and I don't have the resource to do it here and or yeah. outside of the clinic. One of the things that really annoys me is I've heard in our rehab center more than once that we do physical rehab, not mental health rehab. And I just stare at people with my jaw slack going, huh? That's because they keep changing the light bulb. They don't look at the rest <laughs> of the system. How do you do that? I don't get it. So we as physios, if you want to treat that patient, you can't dismiss the mental health. No, I can't assess for depression. That's out of my scope. But I can screen for it. 
and take that screening tool and give it back to their GP and say, look, I used this validated screening tool and they're not scoring very great. Could you please assess them for depression? Because if they're depressed, I am not going to be able to help them by myself. I'm going to need assistance because it's going to hold them back. And a lot of GPs know they were depressed and have sent them into us saying, well, you know, if you just treat the pain, they won't be depressed. But it doesn't work that way. (laughs) So you have to do some education with the GP as well about how we have to work as a team on this. Or everybody's spinning their wheels everywhere, burning health care dollars, and the patient is no better. Am, am I right, uh, Alex, in, in, in what you were saying, too, is that if therapists would actually look at their current you know, situation and, and the, the environment that they're in and actually do some of this legwork beforehand and say, okay, here's who I can talk to. Here's, who I, here's what I'm going to use to, you know, when, they ask, when I ask this question and I can, you know, the screening component of it that they'll feel that much more confident in terms of actually being able to even have that conversation. Is that what, was I? Yeah, because I, I think when I, we had it recently came up at work and um, most people didn't know what our responsibility was. So if somebody's drunk and they're going to get into a car as a physical therapist, it's my responsibility to alert somebody. I can't actually let that go. But mm-hmm. if somebody's going to kill themselves or, you know, I th- they say, yeah, I have a bottle at home and it's full and I'm ready to go tomorrow so I don't have to do this anymore. I legally, according to the college, you don't have a duty to disclose. But there are a bunch of, there's three things. I think you can break confidentiality if you f- think there's a clear risk of harm to the patient or others. Um, the danger poses risk of serious bodily harm or death and the danger is imminent. When they say imminent, it doesn't have to be right now, but the risk is in the future and a reasonable person thinks this will be carried out. So then you can actually break confidentiality. You can call family or guardian or doctor or the police. And once, once therapists knew what they could do, they didn't feel helpless. And I think that's what it was. I think it was a feeling of helplessness. I don't know what to do. You know, you can take them to emergency if it's necessary. You can say, I'd like you to stay here until somebody comes to get you and disclose it. Once they had a plan in their head, they weren't scared to ask the question. But because they didn't really know what their role or responsibility was, and we can't necessarily fix the problem, but we can just know what resources are in place to help that patient. So that, you know... It, it is having had patients who have committed suicide, I can definitely say having talked to them about it has, has makes a huge difference. I can't always control yes. if they'll do it or not, but if you've done everything you can and they do go through with suicide, it's a lot less traumatic as a therapist than somebody that you didn't ask. Because sometimes totally it's agree. the elephant in the room. And I think therapists feel helpless. At least that's been my take. To go back what you said, Andrew, I, I agree. For people to go through um, the process of actually setting up a system before they need it, and not just setting it up um, in the hospital where I work, because I work on an outpatient team, so there's no psychologist that's ready to come for my outpatient at the drop of a hat, because we have tons of outpatients um, and they have their patients and they're in sessions so we literally have an algorithm breaking down the various choices and where's your patient at what questions to ask what answers have they given you and then what are you doing with them where are you going and emerge is one of them but then there are other choices 
And that is literally kept on the back of my door as a senior therapist out of the eyes of the public. So they don't know what's there for any clinician who's just been like, oh, my God, and their brain shuts off. So they knew there was a process, but now they don't remember it because this is the first time a patient's told them they're going to kill themselves. But they do know there's something about that on the back of my door. And they can go take a look or have somebody else go take a look. Um, and just having that in place decreases that fight and flight response of the therapist of, of what to do. <laughs> and this issue is like all issues with patients with persistent or chronic pain. Find a mentor, find somebody to help you. Talk to your colleagues. Mm. We're not islands. We're meant to be, you know, we talk about patient social isolation. We shouldn't be isolated either. To say I need help, I don't know what to do with this patient, that's huge. Go to your colleague and say, you know, I'm not sure what to do here or can you help me? Yeah. Because we we, yeah. we need that. We need so you know, we, we need help we need help from our colleagues sometimes and Or post a question on Ignite. Exactly. Put a <laughs> yes. question on post a question on Ignite. But but Alex is right, it doesn't matter how long you've been working with this population. You always need a mentor. And that mentor, people think, sometimes needs to be somebody more experienced than them. Sometimes that mentor just needs to be somebody who thinks differently than them to explore their thoughts, to get you out of your box, to get your blinders off, to challenge some of your thought processes. Um, and adding different people to your clinical world as your resource base to, to have those conversations with is really useful, either on a patient-specific level, like Alex says, I need help with this patient, or a systems level. One of the people that has turned into my mentor is our VR technician, which sounds really odd. And she's an engineer. She's an aerospace engineer. But she thinks totally different than me. And she, she talks, you know, the, the human brain's like a black box. You got inputs coming out and you got outputs coming out and you have your desired output. If you want to change your desired output, you have to change your input, Janet. How are you going to do that? And every time I'm talking about diagnoses and systems, she'll, she'll engineer my thoughts. And all of a sudden, the problem I had goes away because she's changed my way of thinking about it so she hasn't given me the answer she's just changed my thinking and I think having mentors in different fields working with this population that patients do sometimes get stuck and we don't know how to move them or a diagnostic group well I get this diagnosis so far and then nothing happens and sometimes that's not a new new technique we need we need somebody to shake up the way we think I agree with that because I think we often have that sort of confirmation bias. We only attend to information that, you know, meets what we think it should be like anyways. So having people that think totally outside the box or different from you can really help. It's like one of my kids said this thing to me once where I thought, man, that's so true. He said, a good course isn't where you learn, it's where you think. And I think mm -hmm. thinking, that's really important because we can learn cognitive information. But if we're not thinking, we're not making change in the same way as you can. Mm -hmm. Chain, thinking is important. I follow people on Twitter I completely disagree with, but it's good for me. You don't disagree with me, do you, Janet? <laughs> I do disagree with you sometimes, but I love most <laughs> Only with, with when it's, we're talking hockey, though, right? <laughs> Only hockey. Only hockey. <laughs> but, 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 yes, confirmation bias exists in our profession, and it heavily exists, and that's why we crown gurus. 
And then we have an entire country doing one technique, even though individual patients come to the table with a variety of experiences, a variety of contexts, a variety of comorbidities, but that one technique's going to fix them. And so-and-so is really well-respected, so I should do that. Well, do I really need to do that? Because my peer in my department's really good at that. Maybe I should go develop another skill so that when we get a patient where that doesn't work in our department, there's somebody else good at something else. Well, that, that, that's, a, that's a great topic that I would love to explore more. Because... No, well, I'm talking from the field of pain, though, right? Because yes, even yeah, in pain, yeah. we have yeah. our gurus. We've oh, crowned yeah. our gurus in pain as well. Um, and I think that's a bit, you know, it's good and it's not good. And I think just that's one of those just be aware of your lenses and your biases helps control for that. Man, we have we have covered some awesome. Wow. Yeah, we have covered some serious ground here on this podcast, which is awesome because, I mean, I think that we've covered some topics that I don't think have actually really been explored uh, in any of the, you know, the uh, podcasts or webinars that I've been a part of. And I think that's it's I think it's great. I think that's that's the whole point of this, you know, conversation was to really get into some of the nitty gritty of these things. And I think you've. You know, I think, you know, there's been some really, um, some really, really just great uh, things that have been said. I mean, I just think of, you know, listening as treatment. I think that's a great bumper sticker that we should, you know, be making, right? And, uh, you know, and, and I, can't, changing... I can't claim that. I read it somewhere. Okay, well, no, that's, but that's great, though, right? And like, and changing the goalposts for our patients. I think that's another big takeaway, um, you know, and, and so I don't, I don't know about you, Maxie, if there's anything that you feel really sort of stood out for you. Oh, there's... I no, I can't because there was just it was this was just I just really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah. I'm just uh, uh, very very glad to have been able to talk with both of you. There yeah. are just so many gems oh, that yeah. you know. Uh, thank you very much yeah. for really for wanted. taking the we, time. We digress from a lot of your questions, though. I'm no, looking at. No, <laughs> you know, but that's that's where the that's where it is. It's yeah. this this was a real conversation and. Um, and I think it pushed the boundaries, and that's what this podcast is about, yep. is pushing some boundaries, talking about boundary spanning, talking about reflective practice. How do we grow as physical therapists and as a profession? And I think that um, having you both on today just proved that oh. that's, that's the profession. It, it hit it out of the park, yeah, really, yeah, in terms park. of that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, I really want to thank you guys for, for being on the show. I mean, that's, that's, that's awesome. And I mean, I hope we can get you guys back on again soon because I think this is a topic. I mean, there's so many topics that we talked about that I think could even just be their own episodes in itself. So, <laughs> so yeah, no, thank you so much, guys. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for thank all you. you do on your, your uh, as I said to you, Andrew, I'm not uh, Netflix binging. I've been Ignite podcast binging. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. That's awesome. <laughs> Well, I hope you enjoyed the episode. It's uh, great having you on the show today. Uh, now, if you've been enjoying the new show, I'd love for you to leave a review on uh, iTunes as this just helps uh, more people find out about the podcast and we'd love to, to get your feedback. And if you want to check out the show notes uh, from the podcast, just go to ignitephysio.ca forward slash podcasts. And if there's any topics that you want us to cover, just uh, shoot us an email at hello at ignitephysio.ca and we'll make sure to get back in touch with you and, and see what we can do there. So anyways, thanks for joining us on the show today. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.